Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Now, from the Signature Bank Studios, this is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, thanks to everyone who joined us at Freedom Summit on Saturday. Another uh, great turnout, a great day of conversation, discussion, speechifying from the Rand Pauls of the world and many others. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Good to catch up with a lot of people that uh, we see annually at Freedom Summit. So, again, appreciate your support of the station and that particular event. Uh, some uh, big news last night. And I love the way it was delivered. I got to tell you, uh, Tim Scott uh, doesn't get the credit for being as spontaneous as he apparently is. Uh, the senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, on Trey Gowdy's program on Fox News. His good friend, Trey Gowdy, from fellow South Carolinian. And um, Trey Gowdy didn't see this coming. When I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. I don't think they're saying, Trey, no, but I do think they're saying not now. And so I'm going to respect the voters and I'm going to hold on and keep working really hard and uh, look forward to another opportunity. What? You are suspending <laughs> your presidential campaign. You, 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 have, you have plenty of money. You have the highest approval numbers of any candidate that is running, and you're, you're a couple of states away from coming to a state where you are beloved, and you are suspending your presidential campaign. You know, uh, Romans 8.28 is such an important uh, scripture. It says that uh, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Uh, I think the message is clear for me right now. Uh, I I am indeed uh, suspending the campaign, but I I am going to remain as committed to making sure that this country uh, chooses the right person by enjoying the journey of just helping people everywhere throughout South Carolina and through our country. Uh, we have an amazing country. I'm very thankful to be in America. We should all be proud of this country. Uh, I was a kid, Trey, as you know, uh, nearly failed out of high school as a freshman. And here I am uh, running for president just a few minutes ago. Uh, boundless optimism from Tim Scott. Uh, positive message even on the way out, uh, the way he came in, the way he said he would campaign. And he did so, but uh, Tim Scott is out now, so... You're basically, I mean, you're basically almost down to DeSantis and uh, and Haley. I know uh, Ramaswamy and Chris Christie are still bouncing around, but it's really consolidating around a three-candidate race, Trump, DeSantis, and Haley, which 
is my way of saying it's really still a one-candidate race, and that would be Trump. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 6436DA, turnkey.pro text line. Your comments on the departure of Tim Scott from the presidential contest. You have to speak into the microphone. It's on, it's on, it's on. It says it's red. Uh, good morning. Uh, I think Mindy made him do it. Tim Scott's oh, girlfriend. God. I knew you were going to blame Mindy, it. Yeah, she's Yoko Ono. Oh, yeah. My head right. is spinning like a whirlpool. You know, that he came out. They came out together as a couple after the last debate. And I don't know. No, didn't he recently get the yeah. flu? And also the he writing ma- was on the wall with the polls. Mindy said, it's either me or the presidential <laughs> contest. No, I don't think so. Um, I think, I think um, you know, I think Scott's a pretty genuine guy. And I think he what he said to Trey Gowdy. I just, I just love him jackpotting his good friend, Trey Gowdy. I mean, Gowdy was like, what, wait, what? I wait. So let me get this straight. You're suspending. So you're not, he was having a hard time processing it in real time. He thought he, Hey, Trey, I've got a big announcement I'm going to make on your show. Nope. Nope. Just, uh, just surprised him from stage left. It was kind of fun actually. Um, but I, I think he, yeah, probably he was in trouble in terms of qualifying for the next debate. And um, as he said, he sees the writing on the wall, the voters saying uh, maybe not you, but not now. And that's the point that he made. The other thing it was, uh, I mean, it's sort of pro forma, but just to uh, fill out the record when asked about uh, endorsing anybody, he demurred. He's uh, not uh, not at, at least not at present. And uh, when asked about interest in being VP, he also demurred. Uh He's not, you know, I ran for president. Uh, VP's not not on my list. All the sort of usual statements you make. Uh, but clearly, uh, he's going to be on, I would think, uh, Trump's shortlist and anybody else, if somehow anybody else was able to secure the nomination away from Trump. Text messages on our text line, 64636, type in DA. Then a quick comment or call us 312-642-5600. Dan and Amy, really, now when do the others drop out? Chris Christie needs to go. Well, but all he does is go on network. He was on this week bashing Trump once again. Well, probably so. Uh, I mean, I he needs to go, but but whatever. He's he's irrelevant and he's he's, you know, I guess putting all his uh, hopes and dreams on some sort of big surprise in New Hampshire in uh, a couple of months, but right. don't see it happening. Uh, the, the others have, uh, particularly DeSantis and Haley, have the money to continue. And so, again, if with the volatility of the landscape and the prospect of who knows what could occur between now and the spring with respect to Trump's trials and how that could potentially shake up the race, depending on how people react to possibility that some of these cases will have been adjudicated at least at the trial court level they're going to stick around as long as the money allows them to stick around because you know you're you're in this long um you might as well continue to push the push the fight if you're uh, haley or desantis in particular especially if you there was any sort of overperformance in early states you may not even have to win iowa or new hampshire but if you come in second place 10 points behind Trump instead of 30. So, oh, well, momentum. Oh, he's starting to falter. He thinks he's, things are starting to shimmy. Uh, so 
that's I think what those can those campaigns are really thinking about, despite sort of their uh, more uh, rosy rhetoric publicly. Uh, speaking of Trump, uh, this was a uh, fun over the weekend. Trump uh, and company in tow at uh, Madison Square Garden for the UFC fight. Oh yeah, that was cool. Kid Rock was there. Tucker Carlson, his son was there. Don Jr. Tucker Carlson, maybe Tucker Carlson is uh, ahead of Tim Scott on the short list. I know there was this reference that Trump made last week. Tucker Carlson is a VP. And then Tucker Carlson is with, I mean, this was an odd group because of Tucker Carlson's inclusion. Kid Rock, Dana White, I get that. Don Jr., I get that. Tucker Carlson there in his uh, country club blazer. Right, Mm. he didn't. Uh, It's okay, they'll wear what you want. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was great. Um, but the the reception, too, uh, other than from Bill Burr's wife, um, Bill Burr's wife, if you saw on the Internet, she's an actress named uh, Nia Renee Hill. And when Trump was standing and being applauded, she gave him the Milwaukee skyline. Yeah, the double the double middle fingers because she's a class act and she's a mature adult. <laughs> she looked like a fool. I mean, come on. But to- the ruckus, inter- you know, that when totally. it was announced, the place went absolutely crazy. I also awesome. like this this T-shirt, uh, King Bao. <laughs> King Bao uh, came out with a T-shirt that uh, read, Trump was indicted before anyone on Epstein's client list. That's pretty good. Uh, it's nice that he, in between training, he keeps up with the news. And I love the comparison, right? Uh, yeah, what, what happened to that list? And Epstein was in red, by the way. The rest of the T-shirt was in white. Epstein, right, Epstein was the uh, human trafficker who had no clients. Still. Still. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to get whoever leaked the uh, Nashville school shooters manifesto on the Epstein oh. client list job. And then, uh, allowed, decision, yeah. then allowed John Roberts to borrow him to write about the Dob- the leaking of the Dobbs uh, opinion as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Epstein, that, that has faded. We We need to revisit that in some more global way maybe with maybe we'll have to get uh, bill barr on the show to talk about that what since he was attorney general when epstein met his untimely demise while in custody and and just can can somebody anybody explain just since uh, king bow brought it up so much i mean even years after his death too well, still being protected and galane maxwell clearly isn't talking didn't cut any deal and she's still alive in prison as far as i know but but that is remarkable what again we're supposed to have this uh, overriding confidence in the department of justice in federal law enforcement agencies and yet epstein is dead and maxwell's in jail and they had no clients to speak of thank you king bow for bringing that back into the discussion you know, i can always count on those ufcers This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. Anna and Amy, uh, quickly, Chuck in Delavan, Wisconsin. Hey, what they need to do is get a hold of that guy that was the facilities manager for that island. And then also the FAA reports flying helicopters in and out of there. They got to know if you can get a hold of that guy. And then put the pressure the, on him. He'll the, tell you who's on the list. list? The, the, they have passenger manifests. They know who these people are. They have uh, people on the ground at that island that have spoken, that have done media interviews. This this is not a 
inscrutable caper. That's the point. This is a situation that has to be one of mostly willful blindness. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So this uh, interview that Trump gave to Univision, in uh, which he was sort of uh, waxing philosophic about uh, the weaponization and politicization of the Department of Justice, about the criminalization of politics, about indicting your political opponent, as uh, the left has done up and down the eastern seaboard, as everyone knows. And uh, on that topic, he had this to say, which sent the D.C. press corps into hysterics, as you can understand. Well, not understand, but anticipate they've done indictments in order to win an election they call it weaponization and the people aren't going to stand for it but yeah they have done something that allows the next party i mean if somebody if i happen to be president and i see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly i say go down and indict them mostly what that would be you know they would be out of business they'd be out they'd be out of the election Go down and indict them. If I win, I see somebody beating me. Then I just tell the uh, uh, goon squad with uh, Juris Doctorate degrees over at uh, Department of Justice to go take them out legally. Go prosecute them. Go, uh, you know, uh, Lavrente Beria them. Uh, I'm showing you the man. Go find the crime. Well, of course, the hue and cry of authoritarianism and uh, uh, accusations of the rhetoric of a dictator and so on and so forth came hastily, including from Obama's favorite Republican, New York Times columnist David Brooks on PBS. The word for it is authoritarianism, <laughs> <laughs> indicting your political opponent. And, and I do think there, there's, another, there's another Republican or Trumpy plan, which would right now in the federal government, there are 4,000 political employees who the president appoints and thousands and thousands of civil servants. And there's uh, a plan afoot to gut as many as 50,000 of the civil servants and replace them with partisan political people. That's Schedule F. Yes, yeah, Schedule F. And that, that, would, um, that, would, that would decimate our civil service, but it would also lead to, apparently, the complete politicization of the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just idle talk by Trump. There's actually plans afoot, as Jonathan said, uh, to put this into effect, and that is truly scary. 
Are you truly scared? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 646-360-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Are you truly scared about the politicization of uh, federal sur- civil service employees, in the, in, in, including at the Department of Justice? David Brooks is. So is the entire D.C. press corps, I'm sure most of you saw one example or another or many of the hand rigging you normally get with the Trump pronouncement of the sort that you heard. The end of the rule of law. The end of democracy, Jen Psaki said. Well, he's a threat to our democracy. We know that. That would represent He always the has been, but this, they're trying to elevate it a little more. Yeah. Trying to scare us just a bit more. I'm not scared at all. Are you scared? 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro answer line, or you could reach us on our text line all morning long at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Well, two things. One, I would have said it differently, um, but let me first do my Trump to English translation. Because this is what you have to do in these instances when he's describing what he would allegedly do if he were the president and trailing badly, scramble the Department of Justice to indict his political opponent. What he's doing there is describing what happened to him for the purpose of illustration and say what, what would I mean? And then this comes to the better part, the 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 better phrasing of this. Um, I would have encourage him to say, what would be the reaction if I was leading in the polls? I mean, excuse me, if somebody else was leading me in the polls, I'm the incumbent president. And I say, go find some way to indict this guy to sideline his presidential ambitions, because that's what's happening to me. That's the way I would have put it. And then I would have added, look, um, we're I mean, it's something you hear me say a lot. We're not them. We could be them. They couldn't be us. We guard that difference jealously. So I'm not going to do what they have done because it's wrong. And it's unconstitutional. And it represents a threat to our representative Republican form of government. But understand that that what I'm describing that I won't do and just illustrating how people would react if the roles were reversed, they are actually doing. And so for all of the David Brooks's, oh my gosh, the politicization of federal, the federal bureaucracy, right? A little past post, David. I mean, are you serious? I'm not saying because it exists that you scale it, but I mean, let's, Stop with this babe in the woods routine. Oh, my God. Politics in the federal bureaucracy. Heavens. Gambling in the casino. Perish the thought. Jim Pisaki was saying he's going to unravel the rule of law as we know it. Jim in the Grange on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan, Amy. I would be truly afraid if Trump didn't do that. And by the way, I'm not talking about just draining the swamp. I'm talking about taking a bulldozer and filling it in permanently. You got to get back to even ground somewhere. Did, didn't do if you if he didn't do what specifically? If you if you didn't if you didn't uh, take an axe and, and get rid of all the the bureaucrats and uh, start from from uh, a level playing field again. All right, thanks so for the, the call, FBI, again. DOJ. I mean, he gave Hillary a pass. Don't forget that when he got into office. 
he didn't, you know, target his political opponent or his political rival, which he could have done, and he should have done, because she got away with it. Frank in Arlington Heights. Hey, good morning. Yeah, it's called a spoil system, you know, and that's what Andrew Jackson brought in in uh, the 1830s, 1829, 1830 through 1837, and he only did it to something like 15, 20% of the federal bureaucracy back then. He didn't do it to everybody. Um, but, you know, back then you used to have your political appointees, and that went back and forth until 1883 with the Pendleton Act when they changed it, and so you had this permanent bureaucracy. And that's about when the uh, the uh, progressives started to, you know, stir in the 1890s, and uh, they realized they could take over the government permanently with their with their bureaucrats and their fourth branch of government unelectable. So maybe we need to go back to something like the spoil system because we don't get any benefit, it seems, in terms of the permanent government when we do elect a Republican president. Um, we get all the uh, negatives when, when the Democrats win, when the progressives win. So let's bring back the spoil system. I think it'd be great. Thanks for the call, Frank. Uh, the, I, I would also hasten to add that uh, I'd rather hear Trump say rather than uh, I'm going to replace uh, another uh, percentage of the federal civil service with political appointees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to riff half of the federal workforce. I mean, I'm, I'm just using half. I, I'd want to be a little bit more surgical than that to come up with a, a rational number by looking at it uh, agency by agency. But I, I'm in the business of reducing headcount. Like actually Ramaswamy has said, reducing headcount. I want to reduce the one of the ways that you drain the swamp is just reduce the number of inhabitants. And this is something that we don't uh, talk enough about. Forget just sort of switching in our hacks for their hacks. Let's reduce the number of hack positions available. And by the way, a little later in the show, I'll give you an example of what we're talking about, why this is so necessary. And we celebrated a birthday recently, and it wasn't uh, just Amy Jacobson's. The Endangered Species Act recently turned 50 years old. Wow. Where that, what that has done over the last 50 years for all of the, you know, tree hugging. species. <laughs> well, for all the tree hugging, dirt munching druids out there that, you know, care about animals to the exclusion of humans. Um, so what has that actually done for the animals? Anyway, we'll get to that a little bit later, just a little We'll preview. Tom, Blue Island. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Dan, I've asked a question very similar to this of you before with different people, and it is, is David Brooks, is is it flat sophistry, Dan, or is he supposedly a Republican really this blind to make a statement that ostensibly says that the bureaucracy is not all Democratic. 95% of D.C. votes for Democrats, and Trump is going to be the authoritarian. That question drives me nuts, Dan, every time I hear it. Thanks for the call. You know, it would be a fun follow-up to that statement by Brooks, in addition to properly ridiculing him for pretending that we have some sort of apolitical professional civil service now that's insulated from politics. And forget uh, at the Department of Agriculture. How about where it really counts, like in the law enforcement and spycraft agencies? Uh, David, do you think there is a deep state? That'd be good. Uh, what, 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 what's, when you hear that phrase, what does that connote to you? Speaking of the people that we most need to be apolitical because they wield the most power. 
law enforcement agencies, IRS, national security related agencies. In fact, I had this conversation uh, just recently for a forthcoming podcast, for my forthcoming episode of my counterculture podcast with uh, John Cass's brother, Nicholas Cass. Uh, you'll be very interested to hear his answer, a guy who served in CIA, NSC, um, White House, State Department, for years as a uh, top official at the U.S. Embassy in Turkey. He'd been in the milieu for three decades. Be very interested to hear what um, Nicholas Cass has to say to that same question, I think. And... It would be even more interesting to get somebody who was on the inside for 30 years like Cass to uh, sit at the same table with David Brooks and hear their competing answers. All this hand-wringing and and pearl-clutching about, uh, quote-unquote, authoritarianism. It's just their usual knee-jerk silliness to cover, of course, what they're actually afoot conducting. Bob in Buffalo Grove, who was at uh, the Freedom Summit over the weekend. It's great to see you guys, Dan and Amy. Did also, you see well, your friend? Did, hey, Bob, did you see Amy resplendent in her, Stop it. her princess, princess, princess of Monaco <laughs> meets Tulsi Gabbard, a white pantsuit? Uh, there's the yeah. same the same suit that Patty Blagojevich wore to Rod's sentencing. It's the winter white. Yes, yes. Yeah, you got to post some pictures. It's like right out of Game of Thrones. Yeah, on Twitter. Uh, you had a great event. Um I'm not scared, but we ought to find out or put it together a list of people that need to be scared. Paul, um, Rand Paul kind of, um, well, didn't kind of, he addressed it at the uh, Freedom Summit when he said, we got to put um, Fauci in jail. And he outlined all the things that uh, Fauci did that were Ill- illegal, corrupt, you name it. Yeah, bottom line is follow the money. So who, we got to put a list together. Who should be scared? And, and Amy, you addressed it. Um, Trump gave um, Hillary a pass. Mm-hmm. This time he's got to go for it. Thanks for the call. Have Bob. a great day and enjoy seeing you. Thanks, Bob. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I um, 
think we need to again restate what we're talking about with respect to the war in in Israel to eradicate Hamas. Amid all the protests and all the punditry, which over the weekend was uh, in large measure dominated by a discussion of what should or should not come after this war in terms of governance of Gaza. Uh, can we just restate what we're talking about here? Uh, to help us, Dr. Uh, Kanta Ahmed, who's a physician who specializes in sleep disorders and a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Why would uh, she be relevant here? Well, because as she wrote over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal, I arrived on October 19th to spend 19 days as a human rights observer with the permission of the nation's foreign affairs ministry and help from IDF, uh, help from an IDF officer. As an observant Muslim, I felt a duty to come and bear witness. What I saw will remain with me forever. One word continually came to mind as she toured uh, the morgues and hospitals neonatal units, examined bodies and ashes, incinerated teeth and bones, toddlers, saw toddlers, teens and adults, young and old, many of them bound, tortured, burned alive. One word continually came to mind, she writes, genocide. No matter how it emerges, the monster is easy to recognize. As I had a do- as a doctor, I had a rare and panoramic view of the aftermath, the targeted people's long, agonizing journey to death. It's not the first time I've seen Islamist jihadism or even Islamist genocide. I've been to Northwest Pakistan and met child Taliban operatives groomed for suicide missions. I still attend to 9-11 first responders in New York. I've been to post-ISIS Iraq to meet with Kurdish and Yazidi survivors of genocide. I've spoken with former ISIS child soldiers and the Peshmerga veterans of the brutal and bloody three-year war. The October 7th genocide was different, more barbaric than anything before it. The attacks were cloaked in the language and metaphors of Islam, yet corrupted with a cosmic enmity for the Jewish people, Judaism, global Jewry, and the Jewish state. They revealed again that Islamism is a virulent imposter of Islam with intentions anathema to the faith. And there was no doubt of Islamism's guilt. I saw real-time footage generated by the Hamas commando's own cameras i heard phone calls exclaiming the islamic declaration of faith as they murdered executed burned pillaged and then broadcast their crimes Uh, in conclusion she writes islam the west and the muslim world must respond with the necessary moral clarity define the october 7th attacks as genocide legally designating the horrors as such ought to become a priority independent of the war against hamas because the attacks need to be documented and prosecuted as crimes against humanity. Doing so is a matter of Jewish survival. The world has been silent in the face of Jewish genocide before. When we now say never again, we must mean it. So uh, that needs to be entered into the evidence against the backdrop of all of these uh, protestations that are going on in major Western cities. Of course, the ignorance that abounds on college campuses and the equivocations that come from so many political leaders, mainly on the left, but in the form of the icons of the left, like we discussed last week with 
a Barack Obama's everybody comes to the table with unclean hands rap. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Caroline Glick. She's a senior contributing editor at Jewish News Syndicate, host of the Caroline Glick Show on JNS and columnist for Newsweek. Caroline Glick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on your program, Dan and um, What uh, has been or continues to be, because we've spoken with you before, but what can, with another couple of weeks since the last time we spoke with you, what's your perspective and commentary on the cultural response to Israeli def- to, to the Israeli defense um, over the last couple of weeks, cultural response in the West. Um, I, I'm actually looking aghast at what's happening in the West, uh, what's happening on campuses, what's happening in the streets of cities in the United States and Europe. Um, it, it shows that what we're facing here um, is a broad-based, deep, uh, annihilationist hatred of Jewish people, of the Jewish people, of the Jewish state, um, an increasing uh, comfort level among people who you would consider to be right-thinking, um, but they're morally depraved uh, when it comes to the Jews, uh, the comfort level with the notion of genocide, of the Holocaust, of the disappearance of Jews uh, from planet Earth. And that's, to me, um, yeah, I think that that's a, sort of a, I don't know what you call it, an aftershock of an earthquake that uh, will reverberate uh, for much longer than this earthquake. I mean, we are at war. We're making progress on the ground. Uh, and we'll defeat Hamas and perhaps Hezbollah as well, depending on how they behave in the north um, and what, what we think we require in order to enable Jewish life in northern Israel. Um, but uh, I don't know what to think about the state of the West now and of Jews uh, outside of Israel, given given what we're looking at. Well, I mean, the crowds are getting bigger. London, they had a half million people, and I'm sure you saw the you know the London Bridge. They they were all over that, and uh, then you had also you know outside of Biden's Delaware home, and I don't know how they got there. That's not an easy place to get to with a thousand people. But when do you think that they'll stop protesting? What exactly? Well, what exactly do you think that they want? Just in order to stop this? Because it's every weekend now here in Chicago, it's every two to three times a week. Right. So I think that uh, what they expect is for the governments of the West to end their support for Israel and support Hamas. I think that's what they want. And Hezbollah, just as they support Hamas and Hezbollah, they're lobbying for genocide, lobbying. They're rioting. They're terrorizing, they're intimidating, they're bullying for genocide. That's what they want. That's what they're after. That's what they're advocating on behalf of, and that's what they're uh, pushing people to do. And I was very disheartened this morning to hear the news that they seem to be making headway in Britain, um, where I understand there are a lot of different clashes that have to do more with domestic politics than Jews, but... um, you had the uh, Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who was the most outspoken critic of these mass rallies on behalf of, of Hamas and genocide. Um, and she was very outspoken in criticizing these things. She called them uh, hate, hate marches. And 
fit very you know, strongly with, with the Jewish uh, community of England and with Israel. And she was just fired this morning uh, by the Prime Minister um, after she wrote an article, apparently, in the Times of London, uh, reinstating her position against the uh, protesters on the street and criticizing the Metropolitan Police of London uh, for enabling a half a million people to be uh, calling for um, the annihilation of Jews on the streets of London any day of the week, but particularly on uh, Remembrance Day, which is uh, Britain's Veterans Day for the veterans of uh, the World Wars. Well, that's interesting, too, because Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, had initially made a pretty strong statement in support of Israel. And now he you want. I'm sorry. And he came to visit here as well. Yeah. And, and now he seems, as you say, to be equivocating, which is not something that we're unfamiliar with, because that description, I think, properly applies to the Biden administration as well, um, in, in, in including the former head of uh, this administration, maybe the shadow head of it, Barack Obama, as I mentioned. But. Um, the the statement that uh, that Tony Blinken, our secretary of state, made uh, last week after his meeting with uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, where he said uh, that the U.S. quote remains committed to advancing equal measures of dignity and security for Palestinians and Israelis alike. Now, on the face of it. You would say, well, oh, oh, you know, we're just even handed sort of that's sort of like an equal protection of the law type of statement. But do you read anything uh, troubling into that statement? Um, I, I think it's very troubling. I think it's very, very troubling what what uh, the secretary of state said. I actually discussed it at length in my uh, podcast uh, last week. Uh, if people want to check it out for a deeper discussion, but uh, very briefly, um, what I mean, we cannot have a situation where the Palestinians, who has a society both in uh, Judea and Samaria and in Gaza, uh, greeted Hamas's acts of genocide in Israel with utter glee uh, and continue to do so. And the Palestinian Authority, which is allied with and serving as the foreign ministry of Hamas today, and whose members wish to join the jihad against Israel and are expanding their attacks against Israelis in Judea and Samaria, otherwise known as the West Bank. Um, we, we cannot have these people not feel that they have been defeated. And what, uh, what Tony Blinken is saying is, uh, no, 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 none of these people, not in Gaza, not anywhere, are going to pay a price of any kind for what happened. We're going to pretend that this isn't a, a society that's been mobilized to annihilate the Jews for the past hundred years. We're going to pretend this is just a couple thousand uh, mass murderers that really have no public support of any kind. And we're going to say that Israel has to reward uh, their society for spawning these, these monsters in its midst and all supporting them. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that Hamas is the most powerful force in Palestinian society here and all over the world. They are the unquestioned leaders of these people by everybody concerned. And yet here is the Biden administration saying, nope, not true. We're not going to look at it. And you have to reward them. You have to give them your your land. You have to give them land that you have sovereign rights. You have to give them half your, your capital city for crying out loud. Give them a state give them equal measure of dignity and freedom as you have, even though they've used everything that we've given them for the past 
hundred years to wage war against us. So the answer is absolutely not. Well, and and this goes to what I started the segment mentioning, which is this uh, back and forth between uh, Biden administration flacks like uh, Jake from State Department. Um, who is, uh, as I've said before, who he is a diplomat in the same way that Jake from State Farm is an actual insurance broker. But uh, Jake from State Department, Blink and others, uh, absolutely there's, uh, there's not going to be a Israeli, we don't support Israeli occupation of Gaza after the war and so on and so forth. I mean, all this stuff sounds very premature, but why do we get into a public spat with a rather rather innocuous statement, from, in my view, from Prime Minister Netanyahu, which is, look, uh, after the war, I- Israel is going to have to have military control of this until we can figure out what governance looks like that won't allow for uh, another terrorist attack or ongoing open-ended terrorist attacks emanating from Gaza to occur. So I don't know exactly what that looks like now, but we're certainly not going to do all of this and then uh, allow the, 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 uh, the, the Gaza Strip to be backfilled by the next generation of terrorists, which seems a reasonable position. So why the, the need to provide these clarifications and go back and forth between United States uh, f- uh, foreign uh, foreign D- diplomatic officials and 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 the Israeli PM. I I just don't see how that's productive. I think that there are two reasons for it. One is ideological. You have a lot of very hardened anti-Israel um, ideologues who are in key positions in the administration. First and foremost, uh, Hadi Yamar, who is the special representative to the Palestinians, and he has um, very uh, long list of ties to Hamas uh, from the time that he was in Doha, the Hamas's uh, state sponsor in Qatar uh, during the Trump administration. And he wrote a, wrote a policy paper at the Brookings Institute in Doha calling for the United States essentially to recognize Hamas as a legitimate entity and to change the terror laws to enable USAID to fund um, uh, NGOs that were going to be working with Hamas and other things. So he has his sympathies, and so does Meyer Bitar, who is the director of intelligence in the National Security Council, and others. Um, and finally, there's the issue of politics. We're going into an election year. The presidential election is is just a year away. And um, while the vast majority of Americans stand with Israel, all of the Americans, or almost many, many a very large majority of the Americans who stand with Hamas, um, are voters uh, for Biden. And so there's an electoral, an, an electoral calculus that, uh, that they're making that they have to keep uh, these Hamas supporters on the, on the left and uh, in places like Michigan, where you have a very large and radical Muslim community um, on board. Um, so I think it's both of those things. Can you just clarify for us, uh, because Rashida Tlaib, after she was censured last week, said uh, uh, from the uh, river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And we've heard this, by the way, locally in Chicagoland, too, from some of these people. They're now spinning this as, you know, what that phrase means is not the annihilation of the Jewish people. It means peaceful coexistence. Is there any uh, basis to support that claim? Well, you know, um, there's a good book that came out a couple of years ago called Everyone Loves Dead Jews by Dara Horn. She's a fantastic novelist out of New York. And um, I think that the uh, title tells it all, because if there isn't a Jewish state, and uh, 
there is a Palestine that goes across uh, Israel, uh, on the embers of the Jewish state of Israel, um, then the Jews that are going to be coexisting peacefully with the people who have just annihilated our country and the largest Jewish community on planet Earth are, are going to be loving the Jews that are dead, because that's what they want. Caroline Glick, senior contributing editor at Jewish News Syndicate, host of the Caroline Glick Show on JNS, and a columnist for Newsweek as well. Caroline, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Have a good day. Thank you, and she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, let's talk uh, Second Amendment rights in Illinois. Since uh, Governor Jelly Belly and the supermajority of the General Assembly, all those Democrat socialists that uh, so popular in Chicagoland suburbs, so popular there in office, have uh, moved to uh, curtail your right to protect yourself, even as they've moved to curtail keeping violent predators behind bars awaiting trial. It's a nice twofer. Uh, Jelly Belly was recently honored. Oh, I saw. By a GPAC Illinois, which is the uh, Gun Prevention Political Action Committee, Gun Violence Prevention Political Action Committee. Uh, board members include, oh, uh, John Schmidt. A former Department of Justice official who famously lost that uh, primary to Lisa for Attorney General, State Attorney General Lisa Madigan. Remember that? Yeah, he's on the board. Uh, Profile and Courage Award conferred to one Governor Spaulding. We've enshrined the strongest and most effective gun safety legislation in the Midwest, maybe in the nation. The far right would rather offer thoughts and prayers than stand up to the NRA. The NRA has no home in this state. We know how to fight for our families, and we know how to fight for our communities. Together, we modernized the Floyd card system. We made Illinois the first state in the Midwest to ban ghost guns. I was pleased to be able to sign the assault weapons, high-capacity magazine, and switches ban in the state of Illinois. Um, Throughout it all, honestly, at every turn, there has been GPAC. None of this could have been done if we didn't stand together, all of us. Uh, And most importantly, that we've stood up to the gun lobby. It's been a tremendous honor to accept this award, and I thank you, and thank you all for your continued advocacy. Exactly, and uh, per that semi-auto rifle ban that was enacted earlier this year, you can already see the impact in terms of uh, the reduction in violent crime. Can you? Hmm. Anyway, by the way, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just held uh, a ghost gun ban as uh, unconstitutional, illegal, the ATF lacking the authority to uh, implement that, administer that ban on quote-unquote ghost guns. So, But again, I, I understand the Constitution, uh, our individual uh, rights, the restraints on government, these are just workarounds for Jelly Belly and your supermajority of Democrat socialists and, frankly, a lot of uh, weak-kneed invertebrates in the Republican Party, too at least here. Hmm. So where does that stand that 
semi-auto rifle ban because it goes into effect January 1 and the handle is this. There's litigation, which we'll get to. The handle is this. If you own a owned a sport rifle, semi-auto sport rifle before the legislation was enacted earlier this year, then you can keep it, but you have to register it with the state or you become a criminal. Now, is there a charge associated with the registration? And if you and if you uh, bought it after, well, you're in violation. So there was uh, an appellate court decision, the Seventh Circuit handed down a week ago Friday that in a two to one vote, three judge panel upheld the ban on semi-auto sport uh, rifles and high capacity magazines. And I remember this is all after the uh, horrific July 4th Highland Park shooting, because we just have to do something. Will will it be impactful? Will it stop uh, uh, violence, have any impact on violence? We just have to do something. Is it constitutional? Do something. There are already gun laws on the book that criminals aren't following. But yeah, so, well, they're, they're doing something. Uh, in an uh, aspect of its reasoning, the uh, Seventh Circuit, uh, the appellate uh, panel cited uh, the uh, Bruin decision that uh, was uh, handed down by the high court last year, which established concealed carry outside the home as an individual constitutional right. In that case, the uh, majority at the, the U.S. Supreme Court level said gun restrictions must be consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation to pass muster. That's an important phrase, and it has some applicability here. So those suits, so there there was an injunction in terms of the implementation. The the appeals court decision a week ago Friday threw out the lower court injunction in one set of cases, affirmed decisions keeping the law intact in another batch. However, there's an amended complaint that's been filed by fire, federal firearm licensees of Illinois in a Southern Federal District Court that's uh, presided over by Judge Stephen McGlynn that uh, challenges on Second Amendment as well as due process grounds the January 1 implementation. And um, Washington Gun Law President William Kirk had uh, a good distillation of this. So since he's been following this a lot more closely than I have, uh, let's uh, bring him in. And, you know, there's a lot of good litigators that uh, are at the service of Second Amendment rights organizations in this country. Thank goodness. Washington Gun Law is one of them. So, uh, again, where we stand now. In addition to absolutely having the most rotten, sinister, and nefarious state government anywhere in the United States, we also know that the state of Illinois is currently requiring all owners of semi-automatic rifles to have them registered no later than the end of this year. Otherwise, they may confiscate them. Mm -hmm. And uh, those... um uh, the amended complaint, those uh, Second Amendment and due process violations. Um, take a listen. Plaintiff's proposed First Amendment complaint specifically contends that the Illinois registration requirement violates both the Second Amendment and the due process clause. 
There is no historical tradition supporting Illinois' registration requirement, particularly a registration requirement that operates as a narrow exception to a general ban on commonly owned firearms. Consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation, and there's the complaint that uses the Bruin uh, test to assert not consistent. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And so let's get into uh, a little bit more of the weeds legally because of something that was done, well, something that wasn't done before it was done by the Illinois State Police in terms of promulgation of rules. This is uh, the due process claim. This is important. The state of Illinois has chosen not even to play by their own rules. Instead of, even though they had nine months, where they could have adopted these rules and allowed public comment and all that. No, the Illinois State Police waited until literally registration was about to open and then issued an emergency rule. But under Illinois law, that emergency rule can turn into a permanent rule without ever allowing a single resident a comment on the rule itself. Exactly how they passed this assault weapon ban, the plaintiffs wisely point out the registration requirement potentially affects thousands of Illinoisans in life altering ways. Those who fail to register become criminals overnight. Not allowing the community of firearm owners affected by the law to review proposed regulations and weigh in on them before they became effective is unjustifiable. That is especially so given that emergency rules expire after 150 days, which here takes us beyond the January 1st deadline because the PICA rules were first published in September. The state's emergency rules are thus effectively permanent rules without ever having complied with the permanent rule process. And they also point out that the delay is also equally egregious because, and the delay is more egregious in light of the fact that the PICA rules largely just restate the statutory provisions without providing any clarity. Why it took so long to simply restate the law is a mystery. And so what you essentially have is you have all these people kind of just waiting on pins and needles saying, hey, what's the rule? What's the rule? I want to see what the rule is to figure out if I can comply and how do I comply? And the state waits and waits and waits. And then two weeks before they open the registration, they do so with an emergency rulemaking order. And the rules provide no clarity, no guidance whatsoever. It just basically restates what's in the legislation. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Nothing like operating in bad faith. Nothing went like when your state police operate in bad faith, I'm sure at the behest of the political ruling class, but nonetheless. Bob and Oswego, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Hey, uh, <clears throat> I, I will never register for this thing. Um, none of my friends are going to do it, but I do have one worry. I have my concealed carry, and let's say I have to protect myself and, and you know, and have to shoot somebody. Yep. Well, you know they're going to they're gonna put me in jail right away before they clear me. And the next thing they're going to do is they will go to my house and go through my weapons. And that, that kind of scares me because at that point they're going to go in and find a weapon, you know? Right. Um, They'll find out what weapon you use. And if you didn't register it like you were supposed to, then they might throw mm-hmm. you in jail. Yeah, yeah. But still, I'm going to take my chances. Uh, no way I'm doing it. Thanks, um, thanks for the call, Bob. Well, um, I don't think you're alone. First of all, I don't think there's probably not a lot of people that there's probably a lot of people, I should say, that aren't aren't even aware of this. 
uh, aren't even aware of the January 1 deadline. There's also the issue of people who purchased uh, prohibited uh, guns and uh, magazines during the period where there was an injunction in place. And so are they can they register when the implementation of the law was enjoined or or do they do they have to immediately return those items to, you know, to the state, I guess, or to the store and prove that they did so and so on and so forth to the extent they can. I mean, these are some of the unanswered questions. And here we're sitting, you know, six weeks away from January 1st. And I heard uh, Governor Pritzker over the week, you know, just defending this again, saying nobody who goes out hunting needs that kind of ammunition. Yeah, and so, I thought, so well, you tired. know what, though? So tired. What about the, the families that were in Israel that were attacked by Hamas? I think they needed all every single bullet that they had with them. Those who could defend themselves. Need. Who needs what? Yeah. And who decides who needs what? Um, and That's the, it right the, there. the law abiding versus the criminal. Yeah. I mean, I saw that extended clip on one of the uh, thugs who uh, committed the armed robbery against that Beverly family, too. Maybe if they catch him, they can get him to turn that gun in. Or at least register, you know? Yeah. Uh, Larry Elmhurst. Hey, good morning. Hey, you know, I was talking to a uh, Cook County, Cook County state, uh, state, not state police, uh, Cook County cop, and he was telling me that the only ones that know you have an AR or a 15 shot is the uh, gun shop that sold it to you and the federal government. That's the right. state of Illinois yeah, does not know. And just remember anything, if you get picked up, have an all-white T-shirt on and tell them you don't have a job, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll obey all that. Uh, okay, thanks for the call there. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the whole point is, right, yes, the gun shops know, the feds know because of the reporting requirements of federal, of licensees in Illinois, federal firearm licensees in Illinois. Um, but this is just like when uh, Lisa Madigan was going to you know, publicly disclose the FOID card list. Oh, that's right. Uh, uh, the list of FOID card dollars. This, this is all a, you know, slow walking their way, taking what they can get to gun registry and gun confiscation. And then the question that was posed um, and it was posed by uh, uh, Mr. Kirk of uh, Washington law, Washington gun law. Oh, okay. What does confiscation look like? Let's say you get to that point. Uh, Are we going to have snitches and state police, state and local police, doing raids to arrest people who have a a semi-automatic sport rifle that isn't registered? You're going to do massive stings. uh, When you, when some by somehow, some way, the list of people who've purchased a semi-auto sport rifle is bumped up against the list of people who register. Cause I think it's fewer than 3000 at this point. Uh, there's a lot more than that in the state of Illinois with uh, almost 13 million people. I can guarantee you, uh, you're going to bump that list up against those who registered. And then those who haven't registered, you know, here comes the seal team six raid. Like you're a pro-life activist. Is that what it's going to look like? Or are we going to do one of those gun buyback? Yeah, programs? That's what I suggested. Get a free, you know, DVD or 50 buck gift card to Target. Yeah, that's going to be really persuasive. Or a Visa Uh, gift card, yeah. No, it's more like the Kamala Harris mandatory gun buyback. 
But here's this is great, by the way. I just uh, <laughs> Reason does some good stuff. Reason magazine. Uh-huh. Uh, they have this uh, running series called Great Moments and Unintended Consequences, all about the uh, intentions of politicians with their press release politics and their uh, their uh, silly, thoughtless legislative measures, and then how it actually works uh-huh. in the real world. Great moments in unintended consequences. The gun buyback program in the city of Oakland. And now, great moments in unintended consequences. Part one, Glock management. The year, 2008. The problem, Oakland has too many guns. The solution, offer $250 for every gun turned into the police. No questions asked. Sounds like a great idea. With the best of intentions, what could possibly go wrong? It turns out a lot of guns aren't worth $250, but they were that day. People drove for hours, even from other states, to sell their old junk that had been collecting dust. Generally not the kind of weapons used to perpetrate a crime. In fact, the first two people in line at one of the buyback locations were gun dealers unloading their worthless stock. The program was estimated to cost $50,000, but the police department quickly ran out of cash and had to issue IOUs totaling roughly $170,000. And it would have been even more expensive, except that Oakland had essentially created an open-air gun market. Some guns were actually bought by prospective buyers walking the line and offering $300 for specialty items. Talk about a misfire. Oh, that is great. Yeah. They know everything, these uh, betters in public office. They've contemplated all the angles. Just press release politics, the same as the ponderous Pritzker practices. That's great alliteration right there. Josh in Braidwood, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. I listen to you guys every morning. And I just have a question. Maybe it's rhetorical, maybe it's not. Doesn't the Constitution give us God, like, all the rights in the Constitution, are they're given to us by God, not the government. So how can the government even say or, or limit or, or do anything when it comes to the Second Amendment? I, do, I will never understand why a lawyer can't walk in and say, it's a God-given right. They can do what they want. I don't understand it. Maybe you guys can elaborate. Thanks for the call, Josh. God has no home here, uh, not in Illinois, but uh, and Pritzker's your God, and don't you forget it. But um, well, the reason is because per Supreme Court jurisprudence, as the Seventh Circuit argued in upholding the laws, there are restrictions that can be imposed. So you can't ban guns outright. You can't ban gun ownership outright. You can't ban the right to carry outright. Um, so the May issue states that's gone too, per the Bruin decision last year. But you can I- enact uh, restrictions and um, this is the left always, you know, poking and prodding to find out what restrictions they can get away with. And there's uh, your governor, your God, leading the charge. Dennis, Evergreen Park. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for having this topic today. I had this story bur- bubbling inside me for the last five weeks. My son's uh, music studio in Pilsen, uh, 19th and Polina. There was a shooting in front of there. Um, one evening, guys were recording and playing. Uh, shots rang out right in front of their door. Shoot, turns out it's, it's gang activity um, to shorten the story. Well, this is for the Democrats who aren't good at numbers and counting. Um, they figured there were three shooters um, shooting at one guy. He was hit 10 times, 
75 shells were counted after the investigation. So if someone has the ability within seconds to throw 75 bullets at you and you cannot protect yourself, where are we? Thanks for the call, Dennis. Uh, Kevin Elk Grove. Hi. Hey, Kevin. Um, I was just recently, uh, I recently just, um, uh, re-up uh, re my uh, concealed carry and I was told by the instructor of the concealed carry class that uh, due to all the gun laws that J.B. Pritzker has put in place that the funny thing about it is is that he is opening right now a 30,000 square foot uh, facility just over the border that um, will be a, a, a gun and gun range uh, store and then on top of it he has advertising out for uh, the AR rifle that is, he calls it a beautiful sporting rifle. I think that's Jennifer Pritzker, not Governor Pritzker, because I saw that facility. It's right on the way to Carthage. It's right over the border there. Okay, so that's what uh, yeah. Jennifer is his wife? No, no, his cousin. Yeah, it's it used, a, to, be, oh, cousin. She, used oh, to be Jim, now Jim. it's Jennifer. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it's a, it's an, oh, Dan, I you should it. see it. It is an amazing call, facility. Acres of land there, and then the shooting range is in the basement portion. Of the well, I mean, uh, a, Colonel Jim, the National Guardsman, for twenty years. I mean, he's not a he's not a Second Amendment opponent. There are other issues, but he's he's yeah. he's not a gun banner. Nope. But his cousin Jelly Belly is, and the power political power structure in Illinois is. That's a fact. Obviously, <laughs> Phil Darian. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Amy, I got a challenge for you. Yes. Uh, the next time Governor Jelly Belly says there's no need for anybody to have all this ammunition and uh, access to all these, uh, you know, uh, weapons of mass destruction is what they call it. I challenge you, Amy, to say, uh, Governor, with all due respect, there is no need for you to maintain a weight of 500 pounds and eat a 10,000-calorie diet a day. There's no need for that. Have a nice day, guys. Thanks, Phil. Joe, Arlington Heights. Good morning. Dan, you're always teaching us to connect the dots. I just find the, uh, co- the coincidence between the Safety Act emptying the prisons of all the bad guys just in time to make room to lock up all the owners of sport rifles. Yeah, right. Thanks for the call, Joe. Yeah, well, you know, uh, definitely on the side of the... Uh, of the repeat uh, violent criminals. I mean, that's what the power structure in this state, in the city and state, has made very clear as well, haven't they? Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, um, like uh, so many longtime Chicago residents, some of our uh, recent residents from Venezuela are saying, this place sucks. I'm going back to Caracas. Adios, amigos. A la bien. A 39-year-old yeah. uh, gentleman and his family have been sleeping on the floors of police stations and shelters after he could not afford to pay rent in Chicago. Well, who can? Uh, well, uh, that's despite the fact that um, he had uh, 15th grand for up to six months of rental assistance. I thought it was nine grand. What? This, this report's 15 grand for up to six months. Once <laughs> How did it, that happen? Once it ran out, he had to give up his living space. Uh, he found a job in construction, getting paid in cash, but it wasn't enough to sustain his family um, since uh, the rest of his family apparently arrived in June after he was here for some time. 
Um, and um, he said, look, uh, the American dream doesn't exist anymore. There's nothing here for us. We didn't know things would be this hard. I thought the process was faster. Talking about the job permitting situation in Chicago. How many more months of living in the streets will it take? No, no more. It's better that I leave. At least I have my mother back home. We just want to be home. If we're going to sleep on the streets here, we'd rather be sleeping on the streets over there. Also, he couldn't find uh, a school uh, for his stepdaughter, which was one of the reasons they left Venezuela to get a better education while they landed the wrong place if they wanted a better education, but couldn't find a school. I I don't know. This doesn't sound like a very welcoming city. What happened to Chicago? 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro. Text line, I broke into Chicago, uh, broke into the United States, landed in Chicago, and all I got with this lousy rental assistance and uh, a cot on a police floor, and I had to leave. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Yeah, there was another mom and her two kids. They just hopped on a Greyhound bus last week and headed back to Texas, said there's nothing here for them and they're bored and they're cold so they're out of here uh brian lozano head of the volunteer group at the police station response team whatever the hell that is the uh, word of the situation in chicago is beginning to spread uh, as city's resources uh have been exhausted and the resettlement program now cannot take the strain of the number of migrants flooding in oh really is that so Uh, The resettlement program at the federal level is having problems, too. Imagine that. Bad policies at the federal level. Problems. Bad policies at the local level. Problems compounded. Josh Howley had this uh, exchange earlier in the month. Speaking of the resettlement program, just to show you how we've scaled the chaos of major American sanctuary cities federally. That's been the. Uh, approach of the Biden administration since he took office. Josh Howley querying Department of Homeland Security's Office of Resettlement, Refugee Resettlement Director Robin Dunn Marcos during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Uh, Here's what they're actually doing. Uh, They're not providing a better life for uh, Venezuelans seeking uh, a better economic life, better education for the kids. That's laudable. Uh, unfortunately, that is not a legitimate reason for the granting of asylum. If that was the threshold, then America's population would quickly go from about 330 million to about 6 billion. So it's got to be a little bit more than that. But here's what the federal and state consortium of the open borders crowd is accomplishing. Are, Are there HSI special agents who are currently at the border, having been pulled away from other cases. Combating, yes or no? combating the fight against fentanyl, yes. How many agents are currently at the no, border that's having not been it. pulled that, off that's, of their that's, other that's, that's the, uh, We'll have to get the right clip. That's not it. Is that, does that sound like Robin? Does that sound like a Robin? Uh, okay, anyway. Uh, the same thing, by the way, is happening in New York. Oh, I love can I, this story. I love it because this is going to happen here when we move people to... Sh- Hall said in 115th, I don't think everyone's going to want to go because in New York on Sunday, just yesterday, they took a bunch of people out of that posh four star hotel, you know, the Roosevelt Hotel to bring them to Brooklyn to one of these brand new tent cities. And did you see the video, Dan? Families got off the bus and then about a half later, eh, 
of families got back onto the bus, one telling a reporter there, I work in the Bronx. My kids go to school in the Bronx. For us to live out here, this is ridiculous. That's what he said. Another illegal immigrant refused to move into the tent city and said he planned on returning to the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan. Well, I'll tell you what, I appreciate uh, the sort of commentary we're getting for from uh, people in this country illegally. They, it shows they're assimilating because they have the sense, same sense of entitlement that the residents of Chicago and New York have. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Another migrant said, well, they just said that they're taking us to a shelter. I can't stay here. This is crazy. Yeah, it's just nuts. Roosevelt Hotel, star, star, excuse me, the Roosevelt Hotel, the four-star hotel in Midtown Manhattan, serves as a processing center, but people don't want to leave there. Once they get there, like, this is great, probably the same as the inner Chicago. Why would they want to live, move there? All the actions there, Dan, they could do their prostitution, their drug dealing. They're right by the Mag Mile. It's perfect. They're not going to be one shipped out to 115th in Chicago or 37th in California. I'm sure we are going to see the same exact thing here. Uh, and again, that's not describing all, everyone that's in this country illegally as intending to do harm. But that also doesn't justify them being in this country illegally, that they don't intend to do harm. The threshold is a little higher than that and needs to be for all sorts of obvious reasons. I'd like to somebody to go over to a Good Shepherd uh, church in Oak Park uh, that uh, uh, has become a, a refugee center, migrants. And uh, I'm just waiting for uh, some of the migrants there to say, it's nice that we have lodging, but I, I'm going back to my home country because I just can't stand being around these people in Oak Park. <laughs> how, how do you guys live with these people in Oak Park River Forest? Could you imagine? <laughs> it's like it's like the migrants that were shipped to Martha's Vineyard. I, I'm sure they were just as happy to get out as uh, the Martha's Vineyard residents were happy to see them leave. It's like, God, I can't stand being around these people. Take my chances with Maduro and his death squads. All right, here's Josh Howley now on the refugee resettlement program, talking to the uh, DHS director about this. And uh, again, what's actually being accomplished by this uh, a lawlessness that's been sanctioned at the border by the big guy and company. I, Do you really think that you're helping these children by releasing them to labor traffickers and, yes, sex traffickers, 85,000 children whom you have no contact with? And your answer is we gave them a presentation before we turned them over to these people who are exploiting them on a scale not seen in this country for a 100 years, a century, a century. It's a disgrace in the United States of America. Let me ask you this. You did a, an audit, I noticed, where you gave yourself a clean bill of health. So just, just tell me this. Do you require sponsors to document their relationship with the child? Senator, we have a thorough vetting process. Do you require sponsors to document their relationship with the child? Yes, we go through No, you do not. You, you do not. Have you read the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations reports on your office. There was one in 2016. There was one in 2018. There was one in 2020. There was one in 2022. Spanning administrations, what they found is you do not require sponsors to document their relationship with the child. You release them anyway. What about background checks? Do you require background checks on all adults in the household? 
In cases where the child is being released to their parents, we do not require um, background checks. But, Senator, I would Do, do you really require like background that. checks on all adults in the household in any case? Yes, in some cases we do. At what percentage of cases do you do background checks on the adults in the household? I, I don't have that number yeah. in front of me. Do you do home visits in all cases? You can actually see where these children are, are being released, who you, whose care you're putting them in? We do not do home visits in all cases. I, I just want to restate what we've said every time we've discussed this, which is this is not um, antagonism directed towards uh, uh, well-intentioned people from other countries who want to come to America. This is singularly directed at the political class. These criticisms, this ridicule, not ridiculing migrants, even those who've come here illegally. It's wrong. That's not the way it's done. I'm not ridiculing them. I understand it. The political ruling class, there is no amount of ridicule that is too much. There is no amount of shaming that should be directed their way, not just because of the lack of the rule of law and what they have, the kind of chaos they're creating, as you've seen in Chicago, and the expenditure of your money and all, all the other things. It's because they are indifferent to being accomplices after the fact to people who don't have good intentions and are exploiting kids. And by the way, that's not me saying it. Incredible. Incredible. The left. Willful blindness. Rank ignorance. Callousness. That's not me saying it. You listening? It's the New York Times. Do you believe that children are at risk? Let's start with that. Yes. Okay. Did you warn the secretary? Senator, I'm not going to get into the specifics of my conversation, but I would like the opportunity. Why wouldn't to talk you about, warn the secretary that children were at risk? I would risk. like the opportunity to talk about what we. Let's are look at doing. what the secretary said to you. The other one, James. Yeah, that one. At least five HHS staff members said they were pushed out after raising concerns about child safety. Mr. Becerra, the secretary, told the ORR director, that's you, right? That if she could not increase the number of discharges, he would find someone who could. And then he went on to say that if Henry Ford had run his plants like this, he would never have become famous and rich. This is not the way you do an assembly line. Get the kids out, run them through, get them out to those sponsors, those traffickers. Why didn't you resign when he said this? Do you think that this is morally acceptable? Senator, I joined ORR in September of 2022. I believe that was reported prior to my arrival, but I cannot speak This is from the article this year. I can't speak to what the secretary... Do you think that this is acceptable to run to, to run ORR like an assembly line and to release these children I to traffickers? I we do not run ORR like an assembly line. The safety and well-being of children is our top concern. And by Plainly statute, not. Plainly, it is not your top concern because you have managed to lose 85,000 of them. And the Times knows where they are, or two-thirds of them. And they're with labor traffickers. It's unbelievable. Or sex traffickers. I mean, look what happened in Bemidji. Minnesota, north of Minneapolis. You had 11 men, illegals, between the ages of 16 to 56, 
who re- were repeatedly raping these two girls that were tied up to a bed chain and horribly abused. And one escaped and then told the story, and then all 11 have been turned over to Border Patrol. Well, what's happening to them? Where are they now? Uh, by the way, uh, Monsters. Office, Office of Refugee Resettlement in HHS, I think I said Homeland Security, but it's actually within the Department of Health and Human Services, as you mentioned, because that would implicate the director that Holly mentioned, uh, Javier Becerra, as well. Hmm. Yeah, our top priority. You, you, do you do background checks? Do you vet? No. I mean, no, yes, we do. No, you don't. Here's report after report after report that says you don't. Well, I was hoping to get away with that. I was hoping to get away with saying, yes, we do. But these are the compassionate individuals. Mm -hmm. These are the welcoming people. It's interesting how uh, the people who are being welcomed feel about this welcome. Tom and Oswego. Good morning, Danny and Andy. I have a personal uh, stake in all of this. As you know, my son-in-law is a Mexican citizen, college-educated, runs a business there, and can't get here um, because of the influx and chaos at the border. We've been told this through immigration attorneys who we've hired. Um, now his application has been approved. It could be up to a year before he even gets to do an interview. And then who knows after that? I think we all need to realize that we start from the premise this is done intentionally. I, I don't understand why people don't realize the damage this is causing, not only monetarily, but just the social aspect and fabric of our country. I love these people, a lot of these people coming over here. I understand why they're coming over here, but there has to be rules. And I blame the politicians who are doing this intentionally. And there's got to be consequence sooner or later because this whole system is going to start collapsing. And if, while it collapses, my son-in-law is stuck in Mexico. He's a wonderful guy. He can support himself over here. And he can't get here to see his wife and his two-year-old, my grandson. This is ridiculous. And it, like I said, this is all being done intentionally. And I wish all the public, uh, all the politicians, when they question these idiots, I wish they would just say, why is this being done intentionally? It just frustrates the heck out of me that this whole system is set up and it's set up to fail. That's what's going to happen. It's going to collapse. And when it does, everybody will be looking around trying to figure out what happened and blaming somebody. Uh, I think that I think thanks for the call time. I think we're there. It's going to fail. What is what does failure look like if this isn't it? Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. New book, The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. Um, That uh, view is uh, increasingly fallen out of favor, including in the ranks of the right. This uh, whole perceived sort of uh, Adam Smithian case for uh, free markets domestically and free trade internationally, particularly the latter. 
So uh, let's pour over the case to be made. Johan Norberg is a Swedish historian. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's the author of The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. Johan Norberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so um, here's a criticism uh, from uh, Michael Lind, who's an academic at University of Texas, Austin, as I'm sure you know. Um, he talks about uh, on the, the trade piece of this. Um a historical example that your book doesn't contemplate or can't properly explain from the perspective of the sort of the radical free market type. Uh, he reminds us that um, uh, once uh, Britain had achieved an insurmountable global lead in manufacturing in the uh, early 20th century, the UK switched from its earlier policy of mercantilism and preached a doctrine of universal free trade, hoping that its superior exports would kill infant manufacturing industries abroad. However, Americans and Germans rejected free trade, built up their domestic manufacturing industries to compete with Britain and other countries with the aid of tariffs and various industrial policies. By the early 20th century, I should say Britain and the the 19th century. And then by the early 20th century, a protectionist America and protectionist Germany had caught up with, and in some areas surpassed free trade Britain as manufacturing powers. And we see the same thing. I think Lynn would uh, argue repeating itself with respect to America in the 20th century versus China at the end of the 20th century into the 21st century. And it's through the same sorts of uh, government policies so how do you respond to that in proposing that uh, international markets be as free and unfettered as they possibly can be? Well, you know, I actually agree that that was a mistake by Britain, thinking that they would kill off infant industries in the rest of the world by applying free trade, because that's not how it works. Free trade is a win-win game, whereby no deal ever happens unless both parties think that they benefit from it. And one of the greatest things is, is that it's, it's not just goods and services crossing borders. It's also new ideas and better methods and better management. So it tends to result in raising living standards and processes in more countries, including back then in, in Germany and in the US. I would very much object, though, in thinking that it was the tariffs in the U.S. that that helped out, and a great trade expert, one of the world's leading, Douglas Irwin, he looked into this, and he saw that what really benefited U.S. during this time, productivity grew the fastest in services, transportation, utilities, communications, in the non-traded sectors, not in manufacturing and agriculture, where the tariffs applied. So what happened was that the U.S. benefited from getting inputs and stuff from the rest of the world by, by trading with the rest of the world. And I would say that goes now as well. And it definitely goes for American consumers, uh, especially the ones who need better purchasing power and opportunities, low and middle income households. And so um, just sticking on this topic for a second in a, a more modern context, um, what about the argument that you've undoubtedly heard before that uh, neo-mercantilist countries like South Korea, Taiwan, China, take unfair advantage of the openness and liberalism of their trading partners to gain market share in export industries that are supported by their respective governments. 
Yeah, I think it's a waste when countries like China subsidize their own manufacturing to such a dramatic extent. I think, though, that actually in many cases it's us who are, who are benefiting from it, the U.S. and European consumers, not the Chinese economy. If you look at where China's made the most pro- progress, it's in private companies, it's in the most liberalized areas, it's not in the state-owned enterprises that have benefited the most from cheap credits and uh, lots of subsidies. Instead, they have been the ones who created excess supply in, in, in lots of areas and lots of costly and wasteful uh, spending. Sometimes, obviously, that disrupts uh, our industries and creates uh, problems and lags. But I don't think we should see this as sort of their, their secret ingredients in, in say, China's uh, progress. On the contrary, this is a weakness. This is one of the reasons why they are seeing so much unsustainable debts and um, the kind of constantly disappointing growth rates nowadays because they're not as entrepreneurial as they should be. Um, the um, the point you make about um, uh, unemployment, um, you essentially say, uh, which is uh, a common free market libertarian position um, that uh, artificial increases in wages like by government diktat may cause lasting or permanent unemployment for a substantial portion of the workforce. Um, Lind and others argue that that actually doesn't happen, that mass employment on mass unemployment has always been caused by financial crises or external supply sh- shocks, like say, I don't know, locking down your economy, which we all did not by um, wage and benefit mandates. How do you respond to that? Well, overall, I agree. Shocks tend to have that detrimental effect of trying to shut down the world economy, which, by the way, is an excellent argument against protectionism because that's really like constant lockdowns in, in different sectors. But if Lind and others doesn't think that wages and benefit levels has any effect on on the kind of inputs, including work, labor that's used in, in production, you should look more to Europe and places with very high minimum wages. Uh, and then you can see that for a very long time, lots of European countries have had unemployment rates around 10% or, or even more. So there is a connection. And why wouldn't it be? You constantly think about what are you going to use uh, in terms of um, work uh, hours or invest more in machinery. And obviously, if the price of a worker increases much more than its productivity, then that's an added cost. And then you have to start thinking about alternatives, just as you would if suddenly one particular kind of intermediate good some sort of input in production, some sort of resource increases in price dramatically. It's a signal that you have to conserve that particular resource and just use it when it's very valuable. Now, well, oh, while writing your book, you, you went around the United States and talked to people who were on welfare. What did you find? Yeah, I found that it's very expensive to be poor. Uh, I found out that, you know, we talk a lot about the high marginal tax rates that the, the rich are facing, but actually the marginal tax rates for the poorest 
are much, much higher. It could be 80% or even 100% of an extra income that you get that you suddenly are deprived of, uh, not just in terms of increased taxes, but also because certain benefits are, are removed. So this is really an area where we need so much more heavy thinking and imagination, I think, when it comes to, to social policy, because oftentimes there are so many different benefit systems and it's difficult to calculate. I've met so many people on welfare who are sitting there with pen and paper and with relatives trying to help them out to understand what happens if I were to move to this place and get this job instead. How much would I lose in benefits at this one particular moment? And it turns out that to many of them, it's incomprehensible. But, but if you look at the hard data, many of them wouldn't make much by, by doing something uh, as dramatic as moving to, to a new kind of job. And I think this is one thing that slowed down the mobility of our economy and has created welfare dependency. And it takes a lot of hard work to, to reform these areas. Since you're of Swedish extraction, there was a piece in uh, Foreign Policy magazine the other day about uh, Nordic countries that have this um, perception still as being these sort of uh, uh, socialist government-directed uh, economies and societies. Comrade Bernie Sanders is always holding up uh, Sweden, Finland, Denmark as like examples of these socialist utopias. Uh, but um, it, it, it turns out that the picture is a lot more complicated than maybe it was two or three generations ago. Um, what's the, I mean, can the experience of Sweden, for example, over the last three decades and what that tells us about uh, uh domestic and uh and 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 uh international oriented government meddling in matters economic uh and what that begets and what the uh, what the the course corrections if any were in Sweden uh, from learned experience yeah this is interesting there seems to be a lagging perception in the US and also all around the world um it's it's stuck in the 1970s because that's the one period, the 1970s and 80s, when Sweden really became an outlier in terms of very big government, very high taxes, regulating most uh, industries and prices and, and trade. Uh, and that's what people still remember. And they also remember that Sweden seems to be a fairly functioning society compared to, to many other places, which, which is correct. After all, I, I grew up in Sweden in the 70s and 80s. But what they miss is that... Um, this was a moment when we started to experiment because Sweden was already one of the richest and most well-functioning countries on the planet. Uh, so we had some good baggage. Uh, but then what happened in the 1970s and 80s was that this was the one moment in modern Swedish history when we began to lag behind other countries. Uh, growth rates constantly disappointed. We didn't create a single net job in the private sector. And we built up debts and deficits uh, constantly because it was so difficult to do business in Sweden. And actually, some of the most famous Swedish companies like IKEA and Tetra Pak, they left Sweden in the 1970s and 80s because it was so difficult to do business there. And it all ended in a terrible financial crisis in the early 1990s. And for a brief moment in time, we actually had a 500% interest rate. Uh, not five, which seems very high right now, uh, but 500. Steve, 
bad time to buy a home. Yeah. yeah. And so and so the course yeah. corrections. So that was time for a course correction. And and what happened then is that Sweden began then to liberalize markets and businesses and reduce taxes uh, again. So if if a Bernie Sanders wanted to imitate actually existing Sweden today, uh, he would have to liberalize many markets. So he would have to reform social security introduce school vouchers, uh, abolish occupational licensing, and actually abolish taxes on inheritance and property and, and lower them on corporate, corporate taxes. Um, because that was what was needed to make Sweden open for business again. It, it seems to be one of the things that um, some of the um, neo-mercantilists argue is uh, a contradiction in terms. They sort of argue to reduce uh, the regulatory and administrative state domestically to allow for uh, freer competition, you know, freer market to open for, to make markets freer and more competitive. Um, and uh, at the same time, argue for protectionist policies abroad. And um, you're never going to have a perfect free market. There's always going to be because just of the nature of humanity, there's always going to be government meddling, domestically, internationally. But um, shouldn't those policies be thought of as working in tandem? If you're going to liberalize domestically, liberalize, you should liberalize sort of proportionally when it comes to um, uh, policies that have international impact? Yes, to me, this doesn't make sense. If it was really a way of making us stronger, not to have to do business with the rest of the world, why wouldn't Illinois benefit more from not doing business with uh, Texas and uh, and New York? And if if that's the case, why why should Chicago do business with Milwaukee? Uh, and in in effect, why would a single street block do business with with another part of the town? Um, there's no, I mean, borders and, and countries do exist, but in economic terms, the same principles apply. That we benefit from having access to a larger selection of ideas, um, technological capabilities, goods and services. So we we benefit from being open to the rest of the world. That goes for individuals and households, and it goes countries as well. And we certainly benefit from the competition from other places because it forces us to always be on our toes and our businesses won't become monopolies, but instead have to keep on upgrading technology uh, management and make sure that the prices... Uh, don't become extortionary. So um, to me, there's a lack of consistency or or at least of uh, of economic literacy there. Johan Norberg is a Swedish historian and senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The new book, The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. Johan Norberg, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. This is an interesting story. Apparently, uh, the uh, teachers, administrators... The leadership of Bogan High School was attempting to turn the high school into a Hindu temple. Oh, really? <laughs> I 
What could go wrong? A, a um, student who uh, describes herself as a very strong Christian basketball player at Bogan, or I think formerly of Bogan now, Mariah Green, said um, she was there was an attempt made to force her to participate in Hindu rituals inside the school. A woman who was teaching her meditation in mandated quiet time, quote unquote, asked her to bow to an image of a foreign deity she did not recognize. The uh, woman teaching the meditation said it would help her internalize the mantras and bring her to Zen. She said, uh, did uh, Mariah Green, I'm in school right now. Why are we learning how to meditate in this way? I just knew it wasn't right. So that's what made me take the initiative and go home to tell my parents uh, and auntie, who was my pastor at the time, that I didn't feel comfortable with what they, they were enforcing on me in school. The only time I kneel was when I was at the altar church when I'm praying and I'm kneeling down for God because that's the way that we were taught, but not the kneeling to uh, that idol. It was inappropriate. She's not commenting on the Hindu religion. She's just saying that's not my faith, basically. She also said the students were informed by the uh, instructor that the mantras were, quote unquote, meaningless words. But um, this young lady taking some initiative she did some research on the mantras and found they were actually the names of Hindu gods. So it wasn't meaningless. It was essentially attempting to compel a student to practice uh, a Hindu when she is a Christian. Boy, all this talk about uh, religious zealotry from the right. Huh. Bogan High School. CPS. Remarkable. For more on this story, please be joined by Judith Cott, who's a senior associate attorney at Mock and Baker, the law firm that represented Mariah Green in this case against CPS. Uh, Judith Cott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. I'm glad to be here. So um, you to you know, fill in the blanks for us in terms of uh, anything else that we should know about this case. And the way that Mariah just described it, I'm I'm a little unclear. Is this is this a teacher? Is this some sort of volunteer? Well, give give us some more detail here to fill in the picture. Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. Um, we filed a lawsuit in February of this year, so anybody that's interested in finding out more details can find it on our website, which is maukbaker.com under the blog section. Basically what happened is the David Lynch Foundation brought a proposal to the University of Chicago Urban Lab to run a research project um, involving the operation of quiet time and the TM program, which is Transcendental Meditation, into Chicago Public Schools. So this happened, and they agreed to uh, cooperate and coordinate with each other. David and Lynch, so David eight- Lynch, I'm sorry to interrupt, but David Lynch, like David Lynch, the director, like uh, that yeah, David, David Lynch? Lynch? Foundation. Yeah, but I mean, that's yeah. the David Lynch we're talking about. Correct, correct. Okay. So um, they all cooperated according to our uh, complaint that we filed on Mariah's behalf in order to implement this TM slash quiet time program into eight CPS schools. And Bogan High School happened to be one of them. So uh, Mariah Green, she transferred from a charter school and she was, I believe she was 16 at the time. 
when she came to Bogan High School. And she came to Bogan because she's a basketball player at the time, and um, they offered a good program. So when she came there, she knew that she had to keep her grades up, and you know, and, and she was very conscientious and wanted to do so. So um, she was very confused when she and about three or four other students were led into a darkened room. Um, there was a woman with a headdress on, and she was chanting uh, Sanskrit words. If you go to the complaint, we, we indicate what those words actually were, uh, which was inviting Hindu deities into the room. So there was a table, there was an image of a guru dev, and um, she was asked to kneel in front of it, and she made the excuse that her knee hurt so that she would get out of it. Um, there was about three days of training, so-called training, for, um, um, for this transcendental meditation. She went home and told her mother and her auntie, and um, they told her, you know, she's not going to kneel, and she knew that because she's a Christian. So then um, the other aspect of this is there's a quiet time uh, program that she was supposed to remember the mantra that was whispered into her ear and meditate on it 15 minutes a day, two periods a day in her second period and her seventh period. I believe one of the classes was her art class. So um, there would be a voice on the intercom that says, okay, it's quiet time, clear your desk, uh, get quiet. Um, so students were supposed to, there was a control group in this research project, and, and there were people that were to meditate on their mantra. And the idea behind this is they were trying to target the violence in, in, in particular Chicago public schools, and they thought that this particular program would be beneficial for students. But, but uh, we maintain in the complaint, it wasn't like a regular meditation, you know, like just close your eyes, you know, you know uh, take some deep breaths, think of something peaceful. This was actually very controlled. It was a captive audience of minor students. And we alleged that they were coerced. So, well, the, but they, this class, okay, so this program called Quiet Time, was it an actual class? Like, or was it a first period class, second period? Was this an extra curricular okay. activity? Or did they make every student at Bogan go to Quiet Time? They made every student go into Quiet Time. It was incorporated into their bell schedule uh, for the second period and for seventh period. So it was definitely part of the instructional time, even though they were not allowed. Um, you know, to even work on art during her art class or, you know, do homework or anything like that. They were to close their eyes, meditate on their mantra, and that was considered to be, quote, instructional time. And so this was, but, right, so it wasn't volunteer. And, and it w- is, again, who's leading the class? Is it a teacher or is it somebody from the David Lynch Foundation? Is it somebody who used to write Twin Peaks? I mean, wh- who, who's there? Who's in front of the class? Sometimes it, sometimes it was um, someone from the David Lynch Foundation, you know, like a, they hired transcendental meditation teachers, but sometimes it was a CPS teacher. Um, and so we maintained that the CPS teachers were all trained in, quiet, in, in transcendental meditation as well. And, and, when, and when, I mean, when Ma, uh, did mom go to the school and say, um, what are you doing? I mean, I'm fine. You know, I, I've, I've nothing. It's like I nothing against uh, people who practice the Hindu faith, but that's not my daughter's faith. And you're you're compelling her to do. What, what are you doing? Yes, actually, her auntie. Um, she wrote a letter to CPS 
she followed up and expressed the fact that uh, this was not right. Um, as we maintain in our in our complaint, it was a violation of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. This was government trying to push one religion on another. Again, this is not anything against Hindu, except for the fact that it did not belong in a public school. Right. Well, you mentioned, too, that Bogan is not was one of eight schools. What other high schools are offering quiet time? Well, it's been discontinued as of 2020, so the program no longer exists. And, you know, I cannot tell you exactly all the other schools. Um, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but there were eight southwest uh, Chicago, southwest suburbs schools that were um, implementing quiet time. Did, did you get, um, did, was there any response from the David Lynch Foundation? Uh, was, it was perhaps something lost in translation that this was supposed to be, you know, voluntary and um, we, we, we weren't, we were not intended to being a party to trying to push this on kids. It was just an opportunity or something like that. Did, did anything potentially get lost in translation? Um, no, they definitely, I believe, uh, they insisted that the three-day training program be, um, con- you know, continued along with the quiet time. So um, the defendant's position was that the parents were told through an opt-out form which, you know, Mariah maintains that her mother never received that opt-out form. And we do represent two other students, one which settled and another which is pending. And both of them also said their parents did not receive any opt-out form. Yeah, I mean, this would be like, right, the obvious could be like, pick a religion, any religion. If you force every uh, kid to recite the... Uh, uh, um uh, the, the Our Father or the uh, Apostolic Creed. I mean, you, you think there'd be any problems? You think the ACLU would uh, be on the case? Of course yeah. they would. I mean, it's just it's just bizarre. It w- and it, this wasn't just to be clear. This wasn't like a comparative religions unit, right? Where like that we're going to look at Hinduism, we're going to look at Christianity, Judaism, the world religions, and and get get, get a better understanding, like an introductory understanding of some of the uh, commonalities and distinctions. Absolutely not. In fact, you know, um, Mariah indicated in several of the interviews that she had already done that she felt confused, she felt scared, she felt alone, angry. She made her voice heard to uh, the teachers. She looked up the mantra herself on the Internet to find out what it was. Um, She was not at all told that this was some sort of part of a comparative religion class. Um, She didn't know what was going on. It made her feel very upset. It, it did the opposite effect of what meditation is supposed to do. <laughs> and CPS, uh, I mean, they chose to litigate this or they chose to settle it? This is what's called an offer of judgment. Um, the federal rules, uh, if, if the defendant the plaintiff with what is called an offer of judgment, if the plaintiff accepts it, then that is a public uh, record opposed to the other case we had, which is a settlement conference where we can't discuss any part of the settlement. But because it's an offer of judgment that they came to us with, we are absolutely allowed to discuss it and explain, you know, what occurred. And so what occurred? What occurred is that um, basically uh, David Lynch Foundation decided to uh, pay 75000 as did the Board of Education of the City of Chicago, 75000 for a total of 150000 to Mariah Green's case. Judith Cott, Senior Associate Attorney, Malk and Baker, uh, Malk, M-A-U-C-K, Baker.com, if you want to go look up the uh, complaint and 
get all the details, but I think uh, you provided a nice summary. Uh, Judith Ka, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Speaking of uh, disintegrating big cities like Chicago, since we just were, see this story? Which one? Secret Service agents uh, assigned to defend Bush's granddaughter, Naomi, uh, opened fire on a group of three people attempting to break into a parked, unmarked Secret Service vehicle in D.C. They were breaking the window of the SUV, prompting one agent to open fire. No one was shot. The group fled the scene, according to Secret Service. This was in the Georgetown neighborhood late last night. Yeah, nice uh, nation's capital you got there. Dan and Amy, speaking of um, the disintegration of great cities and the lawlessness that reigns in uh, cities and states that are controlled by Democrat socialists, including, of course, our borders. The 60 Minutes piece uh, yesterday on Iranian, the Iranian assassination program. Uh, The Iranians, the mullahs in Tehran, contracting with freelancers in America to put hits on former top officials in the Trump administration, as well as Iranian dissidents living in America. And it's really interesting. So, I mean, there's layers to this, but one of the layers is these aren't, um, you know, uh, jihadist assassins they're contracting with criminals in this country from a variety of countries that shouldn't be, be in this that shouldn't be in this country yeah, they're being hitmen and one person on the list uh, john bolton's on the list yeah here he is uh, in the context of the larger description of what's happening this video was posted online by a channel affiliated with iran's revolutionary guard It vows to kill former American government officials, including President Trump, to avenge the 2020 U.S. assassination of the terrorism mastermind Qasem Soleimani. Threats like this have been deemed credible enough that several of these officials have been under round-the-clock protection, including former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Iran reportedly offered a hitman a million dollars to kill him, and John Bolton, the former national security advisor. They bargained the price for me would be $300,000, which I have to say I found insulting. So what exactly was the plot against you? The Revolutionary Guard sought to procure either my kidnapping or my assassination, Uh, not directly by a Revolutionary Guards member, but by seeking a hitman who would carry out the job uh, either in the U.S. or abroad. The FBI has an arrest warrant out for this Iranian officer claiming that he hired the hitman online to travel to Washington, corner Bolton in a garage, and kill him. But it turned out, lucky for Bolton, the assassin was an FBI informant. This was not Internet chatter. This was a negotiation to murder an American citizen, a former government official. Is the threat against you ongoing? We've got marked Secret Service cars that say police, United States Secret Service, outside my home. He's not the only one. So an Iranian dissident named Masi Alinejad, who is a uh, activist um, promoting basically 
uh, women's equality in Iran, um, r- removal of the requirement to wear a hijab, and she's got a bunch of followers. Well, she's been targeted for elimination by the Iranians, too. And um, I, I mentioned other countries. They Part of her story was the Iranians contracting with an Azerbaijani criminal here who's on the ring camera video outside her home before he's captured uh, to kill her. It's like, wow, the government from my own country trying to kill me, but my adopted country trying to protect me. You have to be an Iranian to survive assassination plot, to understand that how it feels to survive in America and to have the platform and to criticize the U.S. government. You're tearing up. Tell me why you're tearing up. Because people in my country get killed for criticizing, get shot in head for the crime of criticizing. Yeah, nice uh, reminder about uh, what makes America different, why America is exceptional. Uh, The left may want to take judicial notice of what Ms. Alinejad had to say. Uh, Also, the Biden administration may want to take judicial notice of not just our porous, porous, non-existent southern border, but also still Iran exported nearly 1.4 million barrels of oil per day in October. That's its average for 2023. That's up 80 percent per day as compared to what it averaged under Trump. They're not enforcing this administration, not enforcing sanctions. Meanwhile, Iran has launched sponsored the more than 40 attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria in the week since October 7th. And the report's. FDD, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, say the Iranian surge in oil exports has brought in between 32 and 35 billion dollars in excess profits. Heritage Foundation puts the total haul of the Iranians under this president at closer to 70 billion. And Miss Alinejad, who's been targeted by eliminate for elimination by the uh, mullahs, she says one of the things you need to stop doing if you want to stop this, stop negotiating with terrorists like the state, the leading state sponsor of terror. It's just remarkable. Remarkable stuff. Remarkable incompetence of this administration. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking uh, earlier in the program about uh, Trump's comments uh, in response to a politicized Department of Justice and Obama's favorite Republican New York Times columnist David Brooks expressing uh, concern and horror out loud, not just about uh, Trump's comments about uh, sicking prosecutors on political opponents if he gets elected. And he said that during his interview with Univision, right? It's just a way for him to illustrate what's happening to him. Um, He could have been more clear, but the response, the hysterics from the left are absurd as per usual. Uh, But the uh, Brooks also mentions, oh, he, he wants to... Uh, expand the list, uh, expand the amount number of political appointees uh, who are now civil service appointees. And this would politicize the Justice Department as if that has not already substantially occurred. David Brooks being you know, purposely naive for the sake of his pearl clutching. And one of the things we were talking about in that conversation was, yeah, but. Take a page out of Ramaswamy's book. Rather than placing 
uh, public sector union hacks or civil service hacks with political hacks. How about just reducing the number of hacks altogether in the federal bureaucracy? How about draining the swamp uh, by greatly reducing the number of inhabitants in the swamp? Agency by agency. Because the examples are legion and it's not always, uh, you know, imprisonment or, un- or, or, or uh, you know, freedom on the line uh, directly in the sense of imprisonment. But freedom is always on the line when government meddles in the private affairs of American citizens, uh, including as it pertains to their private property, which is sort of a cornerstone, the cornerstone of a free society. So I uh, took notice of this uh, piece over at Reason Magazine. Celebrating, not celebrating. Memorializing, maybe, the uh, 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. Well, who could be opposed to that? You're saving lives that are endangered. Yes, Very few, right? I'll save all the furry little creatures. Is that what's really happened over the last 50 years since the Endangered Species Act? Don't wear fur. Uh, as um, Reason points out, 99% of the species listed under the statute have avoided going extinct over that last half century. This is one of the accomplishments that's okay. suggested. That's good, right? Is that the purpose or their mission? Yet less than 3% of listed species have ever successfully recovered and come off the list. The point would be to see those species on the list proliferate and come off the list not forever be on the list at the edge of the abyss right is that logical maybe one of the reasons why it suggests is the endangered species act is nearly all stick and no carrot the law takes a regulation first approach that all too often makes an endangered species a liability to avoid rather than an asset to conserve Hmm. That's sort of government's approach with everything. Everything is a liability, including you and me. Liabilities to manage rather than assets to conserve or develop or allow to develop in their own rights uh, outside of the purview of government minders. Punitive policies turn would-be partners like farmers and ranchers who are interested in conservation They turn would-be partners in recovery into enemies of rare species. It's why a popular colloquial stance toward endangered species has long been called the three S's. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. Unless there's a change uh, in the law's approach toward the people who can provide so much important habitat for at-risk species, the prospects for rare species don't seem likely to be improved. And, of course, that was the, the thought behind the law initially. Uh, Don Don Young, Republican from Alaska, before he passed away at a hearing a few years ago, so this is four decades plus into it, he said this, as the one person in Congress, the only one that voted for the Endangered Species Act, please beat me with a whip. (laughs) Okay. When the act passed, he said congressional members were told it would save leopards, not wildlife like mussels and snails and turtles. 
Virtually everyone envisioned the law protecting bald eagles and manatees, not halting infrastructure builds or slowing economic development in the name of obscure fish. But that's, of course, what happened. University of California, Berkeley law professor Holly Doremus. Essentially, no skepticism was expressed about the law's conservation goals or its regulatory strategies. There was no organized interest group opposition. No one voted against the Senate bill. It's easy to get everybody to sign on with protecting whales and grizzly bears, but people didn't anticipate that things they wouldn't notice or wouldn't think beautiful would need protection in ways that would block some economic activity. But a lot of interested parties figured that out. And so the snail darter prevented a uh, dam from being built uh, on the Little Tennessee River. The uh, famous spotted owl and the logging industry in the Pacific Northwest. It's also, too, what Americans understand about this. Because, again, it's the the um, endearingly titled piece of legislation, and it speaks to uh, things everyone loves, like animals, the natural habitats, and that's what the politicians say we're protecting, so they wouldn't lie to us, would they? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And it's just a handful of these uh, cuddly and lovable, uh, majestic, beautiful species. Well, not really. Americans typically estimate that uh, the Endangered Species Act protects like 100 domestic species of animals. Yeah, it's more like 1,600. And again, the environmentalists, the eco-supremacists, Greta Thunberg and the gang and others like her have figured out how to use this law in the way that Fannie Willis uses the racketeering law in Fulton County. They figured out how to use it that way in California, too. Where, as you'll recall, bees are now fish. Oh, how does that work? Bees are now fish in California. Fiona Harrigan from Reason explains how bees have been transformed into fish in California. For the past few years, government officials and agricultural groups in California have been fighting over the question, are bees fish? In May, the California Court of Appeal for the 3rd District finally ruled on the matter. They are. Bees are fish. The California Endangered Species Act prohibits the import, export, possession, purchase, sale, or killing of roughly 250 plant and animal species. Birds, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, plants, and fish are on the list but insects aren't. So how did state officials, at the request of environmental groups, end up getting those bumblebees added? By declaring them fish, and the appeals court agreed. So what is a fish? According to the California Endangered Species Act, the word refers to a wild fish, mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, amphibian, or part, spawn, or ovum of any of those animals. The key word there is invertebrate. Because they don't have backbones, the appeals court ruled that bumblebees could reasonably be designated as fish, since the word is considered a term of art, 
meaning it has a definition within a specific field that diverges from common usage. A problem with this argument is that it seriously undercuts the idea that law is supposed to be clear and accessible to ordinary people, notes George Mason University law professor Ilya Soman. The average person has a particular understanding of what the word fish means, and when reading the law, would be hard-pressed to figure out that harming bees is a no-no. And yet, any farmer who harms or kills one of these protected bees could be punished with fines or have their pesticide permits rescinded. And, by the way, farmers will have to distinguish the four protected types of bees from the 21 other bumblebee species that can be found in California. The court's ruling might also empower activists to further stretch the legal definitions of the California Endangered Species Act as they try to get more critters protected. The California Fish and Game Commission may list any invertebrate as an endangered or threatened species if the invertebrate meets the requirements of the relevant statutes, the court ruled. Ladybugs, scorpions, moths, butterflies, maybe someday they can be fish too. Maybe someday the politicians in D.C., also invertebrates, could be fish as well. I mean, that's the absurdity. That's where this goes. Did you think that uh, any of those deep thinkers that passed this legislation and all of the uh, administrators of the agencies that have, uh, where for, for whom the uh, Endangered Species Act is relevant over the years, over 50 years, that this would be the application? And so, No, but it's the creep. It's the weaponization, it's interest groups using this for motives that are ulterior to the preservation of habitat or particular species. And so you wind up in this grotesque place where you have the state of California, through a court of law, declare bees to be fish. Right? It's embarrassing. Harry in uh, Novi, Michigan. Novi. Novi, Novi, Novi. Good morning. Uh, the land of the of, of John, uh, Jim Harbaugh, the cheater. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, Harry, go ahead. Fine, I guess we'll let you on the line. What do you want? <laughs> well, in my time up here, I came across uh, near Battle Creek, Michigan. Mr. Kellogg of the Kellogg Foods fame had a farm and about 100 years or so ago, decided that he would set up a bird sanctuary. Uh, it's now run by a university, and they take in injured birds as well. However, the re main reason he set this up was due to a bird on the extinction list at that time, and I'm curious to wonder if it still is, but it's our beloved Canada goose. And, um, you know, the ones we can't run into with our cars even accidentally without getting ticketed or... Uh, charge. So I just wanted to throw that out there that you can thank Mr. Kellogg for all of the doo-doo that's all over our parks, etc. I, I find it very Thanks, hard to believe they're on the endangered species list. They're everywhere. They're worse than rats in Chicago. Uh, Dan and Amy text on the text line, when you can't define a woman, how can you define a fish? Well, exactly. I mean, that's where we're at, right? So, I mean, just, yep. right? it just, just folds it all in. Um, yeah, I think the Canadian geese were on the list and probably still are. Most wow. of them are. Uh, Jim in South Elgin. Well, good show, guys. It was good seeing you on uh, over the weekend at the summit. Um, you know, isn't there some exemptions made for the windmills? Because they kill a lot of birds. So didn't you get some sort of exemption so you put those in there? I'm sure. Thanks for the call, Jim. Yeah, I haven't heard. Uh, 
I mean, sure, we subsidize uh, the production of windmills, so certainly we're going to indemnify the windmill makers from having their product kill a Canadian goose. Yeah, uh, I mean, but right, all of these contradictions, they just multiply when you're making ridiculous policy that's completely rooted in sentiment and, and without any any concern about unintended consequences, not even thinking through direct consequences. Dan and Amy, if anything without a backbone can be considered a fish, then the capital is an aquarium. Exactly yeah. right. Um, by the way, this was interesting, too, from the reason piece, just in terms of what the kind of economic damage this does, too, which is certainly part of the cost-benefit analysis, or should be when it comes to regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, a 2020 study looked at 13,000 real estate transactions within or near critical habitat for two listed species in California. It found the designation that a designation of a critical habitat for the red-legged frog cut land values by about half, and designations for the bay checker spot mm-hmm. butterfly slash values by an estimated 78%. Yeah, better have uh, some, um, well, an expert in you know every animal uh, genus, phylum, species under the sun, take a look at your property in certain places and make sure nothing on the endangered list is on your property before you buy it. Otherwise, it's going to be, uh, uh, at some point, it's going to be uh, uh, lay fallow. You won't be able to sell it or take a loan against it you got a white elephant on your hands which will also be on the endangered species list yeah, exactly. i'm sure too don in bloomingdale you could also thank disney and pixar for making every animal insect and bird in the world a cuddly furry talking animal that you want to hug and that's why people go out to yellowstone and want to feed and hug the bears and get mauled <laughs> yeah all right don. bill monticello indiana yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, down here in Monticello, we have a couple of large lakes formed 100 years ago by damming up the Tippecanoe River. And during the last period of low rain, they completely drained the lower lake to keep water over the uh, endangered mussels in the river below the dam. And in completely drained in the lake, property values dropped, people lost the ability to use their property, and businesses that earned their livings off the lake were put out of business. And in addition to that, when they completely drained this lower lake, they exposed thousands of ordinary brown mussels to the air, and they all died and stunk, just to save a handful of special mussels downstream. It's perfect. Thanks for the poetic. Thanks for the call. No, it's it's perfect, and that's a perfect illustration of the lunacy of the eco-supremacists. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. All right, big thank you again to everyone who attended Freedom Summit. Uh, Dan, next year we're going to get a GoFundMe for you so that you can get yourself a sports coat. Yeah. So it doesn't look like you just came off the links and stumbled into the Weston and Itasca. Still um, suffering from the uh, after effects of Ian. Uh, No wardrobe. (laughs) All right, thanks to George Hoffman, who's in for Justin Kosick, and to Quinn McCarthy. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast, sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773 467 
1-800-500-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.